We're in 1 Peter, and uh, I don't have time to do a big review or revise, so I'm going to ask you to trust us instinctively here in our commitment to looking up this beautiful, beautiful letter written by a spiritual father to a very broken, fragmented, scattered bunch of believers, mostly but not exclusively Jews. And uh, we've taken, I don't know how many weeks now, to systematically open that up in the Scriptures. Now, Sam said to me at staff on Tuesday, she said, Chris, you've had a number of really difficult passages, haven't you? I said, I have, Sam. She said, people feel like you're quite intense. I cannot imagine why. Um, And uh, um, she said, I'd like them to get to know the gentle you as well. So I think maybe tonight the gentle me will come across as well. So let's read the passage together and I'll tell you where we go with it. It's 1 Peter chapter 3. Now for those of you who don't really know the Bible, it's almost 90% through, 95% through. So if you go right to the end where there's maps, it's not there. If you go to Revelation, it's not there. Keep going left, uh, not in your politics, just in your reading, and you will be amazed if you'll find 1 Peter chapter 3. <laughs> You can hear, I want to break the fast, don't you? Can I let you into a little secret? I am flying to Hawaii tomorrow morning. I know, I know, I know. John, Mark, and Tammy have started a six-month sabbatical, and they've asked Meryl and I to come and spend the first week with them and debrief what the last while has been like. And they said there's a free condo for you. So I'm going tomorrow morning. (laughs) And, on a formal note, it's Meryl and my 41st wedding anniversary, Monday week. And so, yeah, we're going to celebrate that in Hawaii together. So now you know, if I'm a little bit nutty tonight, I can smell the ocean. It's beckoning my name. All right, 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm reading from the ESV, which we normally read NIV, but you'll see why in just a moment. Likewise, uh, Peter writes... Or in the same way, wives, be subject or submitted to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the the putting on of gold and jewelry and the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable, incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight, is very precious. <laughs> precious makes me think of another movie. Precious. <laughs> For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, in the same way, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman or respect, the NIV says, as the weaker vessel, um, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayer may may not be hindered. Now, when I read this, I think... Obviously, there are some trigger words in there. Would you agree? In our postmodern, post-Christian, secular world, there's some words in there we really don't like. So what are they? What are the words that jump out off the page or off the reading that is instantly to the millennial Gen Zs amongst us like, 
Hell no. Sorry? Submit? Yes, sir. Sorry? Weaker? Oh, absolutely, Morgan. I knew you'd have that one. I didn't really. Um, who else? What else? So, are those the two big conversations? Is this passage really about the idea of submission, the idea of a weaker, the idea of calling your husband Lord? I kind of really like the idea. I think we should go biblical. In fact, when Meryl speaks to me, she should actually wear a cloth over her head in public places. Or is there something else? Is there something else that Peter's actually trying to communicate that these big trigger words run hard at us, we find that incapable of finding the real beauty in the text. I love Jesus, and I love Him as a groom, and I love the church who is His bride. And I think this evening, as we walk our way through a little bit, I think we're going to see some of the beauty and wonder and majesty and adventure and adornment of marriage as God had in mind. Watch this piece um, uh, Leonard Cohen is my favorite Canadian poet philosopher. This is for you, Jules. And music, please. Nice and loud. actually a better piece where uh, two dancers dance this spontaneously together within that jazz style, but the, the, the visual isn't as good as that one. What, why am I playing that to you? Because I think in a, in a mixture of uh, the number of people who are divorced or growing up in blended families or losing faith in the institution of marriage or defining your own morality and your own sense of, of uh, moral code and life based on what you think and what you feel, I think, and then just pure legalism, I think we've lost the beauty 
and the majesty and the transcendent romance and the unity and the celebration of this great thing called marriage. I am persuaded. 41 years later, my story, Merrill's story, and the text have ever moved closer and closer to reflect, re reflect this beauty, mystery, sensuality. I wondered whether I should play it, because I wondered if some of you would struggle with how sensual that woman is. Sensuality is a God-authored ingredient. It was God's idea to make women sensual, to make them beautiful, to make them compelling, to keep us men in mystery, confused. <laughs> hey, number one. I said to Meryl, you're a mystery to me. Please let me never sort you out. Let me never work you out because that day I might become bored. And for 43, 44 years now, I have never been bored. Now, the problem with this text, as you can well imagine, is that we're listening to one side of a telephone conversation. We only know what Peter's writing, but we know that he is answering some questions and some conversations by those scattered through Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. They were wrestling. Most of them, obviously, were not born into Christian families. They were born again out of something else. And with that something else came culture, came tradition, came family. And now Peter is trying to untangle the spaghetti by answering the questions which they are asking him in a fatherly kind of way. When I think of this, and you know I, I read Scripture with my imagination, I imagine a father sitting with a, a young couple. I really don't like doing premarital counseling. I love doing marriage counseling a year or two in. Premarital counseling, you don't even know what questions to ask. You know, look at each other and say, we never argue. And I'm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, got it? In a year's time, can we talk about conflict development in the life of a marriage? So, I think we struggle to really come to terms with this because we're hearing one side of the conversation. The second part, obviously, is we have no clue what that first century culture looked like. Even those of you who are students of social anthropology, we really don't know. We see the odd Hollywood presentation of Rome. But we really don't know what it looked like. What was reality to them? Where were men and women? How did that order, that construct, really work out? We're all inadvertently entering marriage with a social contract. In other words, in our minds, we know what the contract looks like. These are my expectations of you. These are your expectations of me. Most of us don't even know what it really, what they are. We don't spell them out. But they're very real and very true to us. It could be my independence. I'm getting married and I want to remain independent. Or are we equal? I never really know what people mean by that. But some say, no, no, Chris, you must understand. We are equal. This is a, an equal marriage. Or I always have the last say. Now, we never say, hi, would you marry me? I have the last say. But by practice, the last say is, is in the conversation. Or it's a performance-based love. I, I, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. I uh, read, as you know, papers around the world every day. And there was a story told of a woman who reached an agreement with her husband. If you bathe the kids, and they were two little bitty things, and put them to bed, you can have marriage privileges every night. You perform, and I will give you sex. Really? Is that the only time you will? 
when he baths the kids and put them to sleep? Yes, in a performance-based love. Well, I want adventure. I want fun. You're not fun anymore. You, you, you don't offer me adventure. The social contract was marriage equals adventure. You don't give me that anymore. I must look elsewhere. Or, you know, our, our, our language, our vernacular is I'm, I'm super honest or I don't really like confrontation. All of us write social contracts. And I think what this passage does is it helps us to rewrite our social contracts. Tim Mackey, in a great talk on this, on this truth from Ephesians 5, says this. He says, the Roman culture was defined by where you fit into the social hierarchy. And the social hierarchy was very clear. It was an emperor who was like God, or at least the son of God. The ruling elite, which we see in the forum any understanding of history will give you that image, and they, it feels a little bit like America, they rule everything. And then the patriarchal men, because if you're a man, that was a good thing. And the man had privileges and rights, and he would buy his wife. Tim was saying that the average man in Rome was 30 when he got married. How old do you think his wife was on average? 14. So he married a teenager would end up in prison today in America. 30-year-old, marrying a 14-year-old, and he owned her. Emperor, ruling elite, patriarchal men, subservient women, and then lastly, the children and the slaves. But Jesus gave us a new order. Jesus created not just a new order, but he undid all the abuse and the trauma that women experienced through the ages. And sadly, the church has added to that trauma by misinterpreting and misapplying these exquisite verses. The verse that I think is most compelling in this, if my opinion matters at all, is verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. I'm going there, ladies, in just a minute. There it comes. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. It's an invitation that marriage is the ultimate expression of grace as Jesus gave it, so we give it to each other. C.S. Lewis said of marriage, in Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of a dance. That's why I wanted us to see that. Almost, if you do not think of me irreverent, a kind of, sorry, almost a kind of drama. <coughs> sorry, can I have some water, please? Well, I'm going to drink all the communion wine, and then it could get interesting. If you will not think me irreverent, a kind of a dance. Ladies and gentlemen, the invitation to marriage is the invitation to grace. It's not first about submission and we will go there. It's not first about the weaker vessel and we will go there. It's far more compelling, far more exquisite. When the Trinity operate together, which is this kind of dance. Thanks, Ty. Sorry, man. Listen to this dance. The Father clearly head of this union, loves the Son, gives Him a name that is above every other name. The Spirit points to the Son. Everything He does, the Spirit does towards the Son. He's very uncomfortable when we make much of the Holy Spirit. I think some of our worship songs confuse the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want to be made much of. 
He wants to point us back to Jesus because therein is our true redemption and freedom. But Jesus, on the other hand, says it's better for you that I go because I'm sending another to you. By implication, one better than me. Do you understand the, u- the union and the harmony here? The sense of mutual submission, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus says of the Father, he says, I do nothing of my own initiative, but only that which I see the Father doing. That's just a sprinkling, a few verses that gives us this incredible sense of the dance, this this peculiar dance between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And ladies and gentlemen, that is what we're being invited into, a marriage that looks quite like that. Now, the Greek word for grace is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. It's a complicated word. We've taken one word from it, but it's far more spectacular than that. One, one uh, theologian said, it's a spontaneous gift from God. Let me slow down just a little bit. It's generous and free. It's totally unexpected. Let God rewire your prefrontal cortex of what you think marriage is. You saw your old man shout at your mother, slap her around a little bit. Let God do that. You felt your mother was subservient, beaten up by the dad. It may not have been physical. It may be verbal or silence or dismissive. Or when things got tough, the old man got in the car and drove away. Let God redevelop your prefrontal cortex. Marriage at its very center is grace. At its very essence, it's totally unexpected. It's completely undeserved. It takes the form of divine favor, I continue reading. Love and clemency or leniency, that's a bit of an old word. And sharing in the divine life of God. Ladies and gentlemen, that is what what Peter says. We are heirs together. We are co-heirs with you of the grace of life. That is what makes sense. It's not submission, and we'll look at that. It's not weaker, and we'll look at that. It's not Lord, and we'll look at that. It's grace. The father sitting around the table with this young couple who are about to be married, and he says, do you understand this is a conversation about grace? This is not roles and rules. This is charis. Even Jesus, just in John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh. He left the privileged preoccupation of eternity with his Father, And he became flesh and blood to dwell amongst us, constrained seemingly by his humanness. And we have seen his glory. Have you ever seen a beautiful marriage? Isn't it glorious? You look at them and they're in their 80s, let's say, and they're walking hand in hand and they're giggling and they love each other. And he pinches her bum and she's like, oh, you know, like. And the kids are radiant because Papa still pinches Amma's butt, and there's giggling, and there's, and, and there's this harmony, and they, they look at, over the dinner table, and they look at each other, and they smile. That's the glory that grace brings. Glory as to the only Son from the Father, full of grace and of truth. And so when Jesus is my groom, the, 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 I'm experiencing a life full of grace from him. John 1.16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. More grace. There's more. It's not the introduction, redemption, grace only. It is grace upon grace. Waves, wave upon wave of grace. 
John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses. Those of you who are married or grew up watching uh, uh, your, your parents or something. The law was given through Moses. This family is about rules. No, we never say that, but we live it. My, my girl said to me, Dad, at what age can we start dating? I said, girls, forgive me, but that's quite an absurd question. It's like if I say 15, does that mean when you're 14 years, 11 months, and 29 days, and suddenly tomorrow you are capable now of kissing and holding hands and being alone and, and making out? Well, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Surely it is to me. It, it's, a, it's not about the law of Moses. It's not about laws. It's about grace, because grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I said to my girls, one of whom is here, I said, show me you can handle a relationship. Show me. And that's just the right time. And for one, it might be 13, and for one, it might be 19, and for one, when they're 40. But therein lies, it's not an age-given thing. It's not a law-driven thing. It's a grace thing. So over the years, I've looked at grace, and I've landed on three little phrases. Hope they're helpful. One, undeserved mercy. It's not something we deserve. We, we, we didn't perform it. We didn't attain it. It's mercy given when it's not deserved. Unmerited favor. And I'll, I'll explain these a little bit more in a moment. But the same idea of blessing when they shouldn't be blessed. Thirdly, grace, charis, is divine empowerment when we live a life based on the inworking of the Holy Spirit. It's not me. It's not my white knuckle ability to love Meryl Diane. It's, it's a divine empowerment. Father, Father, Father God, I ask, can, how can I love Meryl today? Today. I, I need grace. I need charis. I need divine empowerment to love this beautiful daughter of yours, and you'll see how important that is in a moment. Today. Undeserved mercy, unmerited favor, and divine empowerment. If we look at the essence of marriage, and this is me chill, by the way. This is not me, like, radical. When we look at the essence of marriage, it's grace, not love. He, he doesn't say that we live together, wherever it is in my Bible here, for the love of life. L love changes. I mean, there are times I look at Meryl and I'm, I mean, I'm even all, I'm, I'm quivering at the knees. I look across the table and yes, she's got some wrinkles and, but her eyes radiate beauty. And when she looks across the table and she sees her kids and grandkids and those of you who've been around our table and the joy that's exuded from her, I sit there and I smile. I say, oh God, thank you that we are together in this grace of life. And at times she's a pain in the butt. She doesn't get me. See, love varies, but grace upon grace. Grace grows if we let it grow. Mercy is, is when our spouses don't deserve it. Not to hell with you. Yeah. Nope, that's not grace. It's not the favor. You, you know what I love about favor? I hope some of this can leak through. But, but favor to me speaks of I'm more preoccupied by your future than I am by your past. How many marriages limp because yesteryear was so hard? Funny story, true story, in Pasadena. 
One of my dear, dear friends is a pastor, and one of their lead, one of their couples, leadership couples, the wife had an affair. And it was brutal. I was involved in a small measure, and the husband could not forgive his wife. Over and over again, he would come to Terry and say, Terry, I cannot forgive her. I, I cannot, I cannot. My imagination, my heart, my, I cannot forgive her. And one day in sheer frustration, Terry got out of his chair and he hit him. Two years ago, Pasadena walked out the house, slapped him with his open hand. He sat in the car and he said, I've got to phone Chris and I've got to resign and wait for the lawsuit. And while he was thinking, Thomas called him and he said, thank you, I needed that. Favor is when the future is more compelling than the past. Divine empowerment is where we love, we learn to love and lead from a place of divine shalom, of divine peace. Mac Miller, who I really like, wrote in his song, Perfecto, tell me you love me. Spin me around, pretty please. Pick me up in the air and don't put me down. What is he asking for? Grace. I don't deserve it. I'm a jerk. I do drugs. I, 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 but, and sadly, he's, he's passed. But, but there is this grace cry. Can you give me grace? I don't deserve it. Please don't put me down. So, let's go to the text. Husbands, in the same way. In what way? In what way? In the same way. Well, we know in the same way points back to Jesus and his love for the bride. That Jesus that looked at the woman who got caught in the very act of adultery, probably, my reading tells me, she was naked. Now, ladies, any of you, could you imagine being in a room or outside, surrounded by men, and you are naked? They caught you in the very act of adultery. The worst and most vile of sins of the day. And they all want to stone her because she deserves it. The law says you deserve to be stoned. See, you see, your spouse deserves your response, your reaction. But, but grace doesn't do that. Jesus sits quietly. The very finger that wrote the law on the, on the tablets of stone is drawing on the sand in the great mystery of time. What did he write? And when everyone left her, he, he gave what? Undeserved mercy. He said, oh, neither do I accuse you. Gentle, tender. I will not give her what she deserves. In the same way, husbands, I will not give my wife what she deserves. Wives, I will not give a cold shoulder. I will not withdraw my sexual affection. I will not, I will not. Why? Because I'm offering undeserved mercy. Remember Jesus with Peter. Peter had just denied him, ducked away when Jesus needed his mates around him. And one of my most beautiful moments in all of Scripture is when Peter sits with Jesus, and I can only imagine he looks straight ahead of him. I mean, kids always think you don't know when they've done something, or even dogs, you know. They look away as if, if I look away and I don't make eye contact, it never happened. And I can imagine Peter looking out over the ocean, and Jesus sits just over there as they barbecue together. And then what does Jesus do? He says to him, Peter, do you love me? Go and feed 
my sheep. Unmerited favor. You're a dog, man. When I needed you, you ducked. But I'm going to give you, as the groom does to the bride, I'm going to give you undeserved favor. I'm going to give you a hope, and I'm going to give you a future, and we concentrate more about what is to come rather than what is behind. And I can only imagine Peter's sublime brokenness as unmerited favor is extended towards him. Charis. We know the early church was hidden and defeated. In the upper room, 120 of them, a little bit bigger than this. And he sent his Holy Spirit and empowered them. In the same way, husbands. In the same way. Submission. Which from, one, from Ephesians 5.21 where Paul says, Submit one to the other out of reverence for Christ. Says this of submission, my dear friend Tim Mackey. To put under to prioritize the interests and well-being of the other above your own. Can I read that again? Tim Mackey Bible Project says that submission means to put under. You intentionally put yourself under. Prioritizing the interests and well-being of the other above your own. What a high virtue. It wasn't exclusively to the woman. He's answering the phone call. He's saying, woman, listen, you, you, you're out of control here. I want you to submit to your wives and your husbands, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. What a high virtue that I purposefully choose to put myself under and place the priorities and interests and well-being of Merrill above my own. I did a wedding some years ago. Many years, I was probably about 30, I suppose. And I met with a young couple, soon to be married, and their, the, the mother-in-law and the father of the bride. And we're talking about proceedings. I always try and make it or do a wedding in the way that they want it. I've done barefoot on the beach. I've done cathedrals. Everything in between. And at a point, the mother turned to me and she said, young man, what are you preaching on? I said, gee, ma'am, I don't know. It's quite a ways away. She said, you will not preach on wives submit to your husbands. I said, it's not your wedding. It's your daughter's. And I looked across, and you could see the intimidation that this mother had fingerprinted upon the family. And she just shook her head wildly. I said, ma'am, I will not speak on wives submit to your husband. What a tragedy that the beauty of this was not seen. It was the law of Moses. Wives, submit to your husband a hierarchical rendition of the text when actually it's not over but under. It's the husband positions himself under the wife in terms of her highest good and well-being. And then the wife similarly submits herself under the husband for his good and well-being. Who wants to fight that? Who wants to say, I don't believe in submission? What about the weaker partner? Difficult text. It's been butchered over the years. But the guy who I feel has been most helpful to me as I've tried to understand this text is a British uh, leader, thinker called Roger Foster. Do you know him, uh, Dan? Roger Foster in London? Had a very great privilege of meeting him many years ago. And he said that weaker is not physical, that's not what 
the writer is talking about, or mental or emotional. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about three occasions in a woman's life where she is weaker than a man. Here they come. When she menstruates, when she has a monthly period, a moment of deep vulnerability. I've had mother, two sisters, a wife, two daughters. I cannot imagine what you ladies go through. Truth. I, I, you know, Meryl and I co-led our kids, and I think we did a fairly good job, but on this particular conversation, bzung. I never said a word. I just watched the things come at our house, and I watched them disappear, and I thought, oh, Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. I shall have no part of this great sacrament moment, this great sacred space. But in that time, and just think of the, the refugees right now, those poor women who are having their monthly cycles, and what do they have? They don't have CVS down the road. Do you understand why Peter says they are weaker? Because in that moment, they are most vulnerable. When they gestate, when they have a child. Jesus said, Matthew 24, 19, How dreadful it is in those days for a pregnant woman and nursing mothers. Jesus said it. When darkness gets brutally dark and trauma hits the world and the great cataclysmic end of the ages he said pray that you are not pregnant ladies and that you haven't got a child you're not nursing a child because your weakness will be magnified isn't oh the other one is lactate when they nurse menstruate gestate lactate isn't isn't that an incredible privilege that that woman have now, now, we men, and I think Paul's addre- Peter's addressing this. We, we joke about that. Oh, here we go, that time of the month. Really? Really? Do you think that's what the Father had in mind, that once a month the woman are the butt of our jokes? Oh, here we go. Moody. Really? Or, or, or is Peter saying, I, I want you to be supportive and to honor the wife when she is most vulnerable and most weak because most men never, ever, ever, ever want to menstruate. It's very tragic that we take these three moments and make the moments of male humor as if we understand what these women are going through. Personally, I find a woman's belly when she's pregnant unbelievably beautiful. We were praying in the park and a woman came past and my word, she had a belly out here. Remember, uh, Joe? I mean, a belly out here. I know you were praying, you didn't see, but I saw this belly out here. And I actually wanted to go say, ma'am, you have got an exquisite belly and I think she probably would have thought, hmm, weirdo, you know. <laughs> weirdo. But, but it's, it's three of the unique times where the woman is both most beautiful and she is most vulnerable. When Meryl became pregnant with Tian, and we, we wanted him, he's sitting here. And um, uh, I said to Meryl, we were in South Africa, I said, babe, you're pregnant. She said, no, I'm not. I said, babe, you, how do you know? I said, you're glowing. You're glowing. It's like the God life when you're carrying a child. There are many reasons I hate abortion, but that's one of them. The glow that comes with the gift of the divine inside of a woman's tummy. And yes, she had a test, and yes, she was pregnant with my boy. That, dear men, is not a moment of humor, belittling, embarrassing. It's a moment of respect and honor, Peter says. 
Because it's in those moments when a woman is most vulnerable. I remember um, with Dana, I think, Meryl was, um, uh, she got diarrhea, and so she couldn't nurse. But, but she was so desperate to nurse Dana, not wanting to put her onto a formula of sorts. And I remember she was sitting there, forgive the, I, it's, the story's not meant to be crude or crass, but sitting on the toilet, and she was just crying, holding Dana, said, Babe, I, I want to nurse her. I want to nurse her. Would you pray for me? And we prayed that the milk would come, and we prayed that the milk would come. And it came. Beautiful, beautiful God moments that we men are so flippant with, as if there is a need for consideration and respect. Well, Peter goes on to say this. He says, they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. <laughs> I don't know about you, but to me, that is a running foot slap. Right there, the father looks down and he says, that's my girl. And if you treat her this way, as I've just described, I will not listen to your prayers. I won't. You can pray, oh God, bless my business and I need more and I need another client and I need, God says, not listening, no, 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 no. Until you learn to treat my daughter with consideration and respect, I will not heed your prayers. What a moment. What a challenge for us men that God will not listen to our prayers when we offer this very insipid, immature, infantile humor at the time when our wives and our daughters are at their most vulnerable. All right, let's talk about women for just a moment. Wives in the same way. What way is that? It's the way Jesus is to his church, in the way your husband is to you. Would you also allow yourself to be put under so that the well-being of the other person is the highest regard? Can you do that? In the same way. And there are three moments, I'm going to try and move quickly with these, I won't be long. There are three moments when Peter describes why he talks about this. The first is your husband's salvation. He says it right here. Um, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. This is a very key moment. This is when Peter is saying their eternity is more important than your preference, your prejudice, what you want done. The unbelieving husband. I want you to submit. I want you to put yourself under him so that you can make his well-being more important than your own because eternity is at stake here. The eternal well-being of your man is at stake. Wives, please put yourself under them and wish for their well-being. Make sense? Hard, eh? Difficult. But when we see eternity in the very gaze of Peter as he speaks to this girl, oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece. Secondly, your beauty. Not just your husband's salvation, but your beauty. Now, we all know, this is self-evident, that inner beauty is more important than outer beauty. We know that. That's not even a big conversation. But the inner beauty needs to be the source of your true beauty. Listen, young, young girls, ladies, whatever. I, I again, I, I'm embarrassed to say I don't understand the pressure you live under. 
the 1920s, my granny, um, I didn't think she was beautiful. You know what I mean? I get the little black and white pictures and the hair was all wavy and the big outfits and everyone said, oh, 1920s, the great Gatsby, that's it. That's what it looks like. And then the sexual revolution of the 60s came and said, oh, heck no. No, 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 no. It's not cumbersome granny. It's skinny, twiggy. You must be skinny. Bulimia. And uh, all those conditions began to emerge as women fought the sense, oh, I want to be beautiful. Oh, I can't have boobs. I've got to be skinny. I've got to wear a short little skirt like Twiggy. And then Kim Kardashian came on the scene and said, oh, absolutely not. It's not plump like Granny. It's not skinny like Twiggy. It's voluptuous like Kim. And I'm going to have Botox and get my butt bigger and get my boobs bigger. Ladies, I, I don't know how hard it must be for you. But there is a submission to divine beauty. There is the submission to who I am. In fact, the text says, unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Your identity, listen, and, and I'm, honestly, I was saying to Tom, I'm, I'm in love with you. This community is the community God gave me in my old age. Meryl and I are besotted with you. I look at you during worship. I look at us outside and we pray in the food tonight. And I can honestly say I've got the biggest smile. But that smile behind the smile is a hidden sadness. You are living under the dastardly pressure to be someone else. But the only place you'll be is the one you are in His presence the great smile of heaven. I, 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 sorry, I've had a few stories about my kids tonight. But um, last night, I uh, came back. We had some time with Tom and Una. And I, driving home from Orange, I FaceTimed my daughter in Australia. She's a beautiful girl. And I uh, started chatting. And it's Monday morning, uh, Sunday morning in Australia, and she's making food. So when they come back from church, she can feed her four kids and her man. And uh, we just started speaking. And Nas never says much, but she's got big brown eyes. And the tears started rolling down her cheeks. She said, Dad, to be honest, it's not the onions I'm cutting. I said, no, I know my baby. I know. I know. Into the inner sanctum of a woman's soul is her identity, who she is in Jesus. And Peter says, would you submit to that? Listen, we don't have to be boring in our dress sense. Look at Melanie, she dresses beautifully. We don't have to be super conservative. We, we, we don't have to be poorly dressed under the guise of spirituality. Dress with color and extravagance and, and beauty and get all your little outfits from the thrift store or save all your shekels and go to some fancy place. I don't even know what. But that's fine as long as it's not the defining reality of your beauty. Show me your beauty. Show me your beauty, Leonard Cohen sang. Show me your beauty. And then lastly, I said there three times, specifically, Peter speaks about submitting. One, your husband's salvation. Two, your true beauty. And number three, your divine adventure. Isn't it beautiful? He takes her to Sarah. No, 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 Chris. You, what? You obeyed Abraham? You called him Lord Nuts. 
Nuts, nuts, nuts. I'll never do that. I'll never submit to Abraham, and I'll never call him Lord. No, no, you're missing the point. He's using an Old Testament metaphor to help us understand something more beautiful. Our submission is to the common adventure God calls us into. What is Abraham? He's the father of our faith. Going, not knowing. And Peter is saying, would you submit to that? Would you give yourself fully to that? Women are a little more cautious than men on average. And don't attack me. It's kind of true. Why? Because she's the carer of the brood and kind of the leader facilitator in her home space. Of course she's going to make sure that the kids are doing okay. Of course she's going to want to, and again, big brush strokes, wanting to be there to make sure her home is a place of harmony and love and affection and respect and consideration. But submitting ourselves to that divine adventure. Dear, dear friends, we living lives, Tom and Yuna are here, Chris and Merrill, we've lived lives way beyond what we ever dreamed or imagined. Way beyond. I mean, honestly, I don't know if you can understand, I'm an Afrikaans kid from a farm in Africa. I get a plane tomorrow to Hawaii. I'm back two weeks, I get in a plane and go to London to go and meet with the leaders there. What? No. This is an exceedingly abundant life. When we submit, put ourselves under for the well-being of others, we live a divine adventure that is super, super compelling. Shakespeare said in Henry V, God is the best maker of all marriages. Combine our hearts in one. This is an invitation, dear friends, to a marriage of grace. Not rights, not love. Something far more sublime, charis, grace, that's undeserved mercy. Sir, ma'am, do you give your wife undeserved mercy? Unmerited favor. You are so about her future, you're not tearing her down because her past is full of hiccups. And then divine empowerment. How can I love his daughter? Fearfully and wonderfully made. Mystery to me. Full of quirks and eccentricities. Uh, unlike me, of course. Are you with me, dear friends? Isn't this sweet? Isn't this savory? Isn't this manner? Can this surely bring the shalom that we long for, the peace of a harmonious marriage. I'm not being silly nor overly romantic, but that can be our commonplace if we make charis the center of our marriages. Can the, can the leaders come up? We're going to break bread together. Just come and stand around the table. I just want to pray for us. Would you mind putting your hands open on your lap? You who are the author of perfection, the eternal creator in whose mind the very nature of marriage was founded. It was not founded by the thoughts of men, 
nor by the definitions of men and women, I suppose. But it was your idea. When you brought Adam and Eve into perfect harmony, the charis was to be sufficient for them. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, I'm asking, Lord, as we come to communion, this is my prayer for all of us. One, if you had a family situation that really requires your prefrontal cortex to be rewired, would you allow him to start that tonight? Chris, I never saw grace as the center of the marriage. Or, if you're married but you're your marriage is drifting. It's a social contract. It's the law of Moses, your law, that will always destroy your marriage. Or you're a young single person that wants to give up on the institution of marriage because of what you've seen. Oh, dear friends, there's something beautiful about Charis. Just take a moment. Let God the Holy Spirit speak to you. And then I'm going to invite you to come up. The leaders will give you a piece of bread. I think we'll share a cup, husbands and wives, friend with friend. us into a grace story we put up our hands and we say yes It'll take quite a bit of reconstruction but we say yes as we come to the table right now Lord let this be a moment of deep honesty before you the body of our Lord Jesus Christ that was broken for you so that you may be blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that you may be cleansed the beautiful beautiful gospel at work in my marriage Meryl and I still got 20 years ahead of us I'm sure grace at the center while Tyler plays and sings would you like to come and the, the team will just bless you and uh, give you the sacrament